it's gotten so far with the hype that it's like nobody will ever believe me now. And I'm like, guys, the hype was misguided. It should not have been hyped. It's really weak. It doesn't do anything. Forget about it. The Laundry is a podcast about AML and financial crime. And talking about those topics, it's hard not to talk about crypto. On one side, you have the champions advocating that crypto is the future. Not only will it disrupt the financial sector through digital currencies and decentralized finance products, so-called DeFi, but that it will disrupt the internet itself. And investors have poured billions into Web3, the blockchain-based internet of the future. In previous episodes, we've had guests working on building this future, but today we wanted to offer our listeners a different point of view. The view that crypto is not the future, that it will not make financial services and the internet better, but quite the opposite. Today's guest, Liran Shapira, was previously a crypto enthusiast and was even an angel investor in Coinbase, the famous mainstream crypto exchange. But after turning a $10,000 investment into a smooth $6 million, he has changed his mind. Now, according to his Twitter profile, he's aspiring to become the Michael Burry of crypto, referring to the investment fund manager who famously predicted the 2008 financial crisis. And to his 30,000 followers, he offers a more bleak view on crypto. Welcome to The Laundry, Liron. It's great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Merit. Looking forward to it as well. So, Liron, you were one of the first investors in Coinbase all the way back in 2012. What made you believe in crypto back then? So, I wasn't a hardcore believer, but... As a computer science nerd and software engineer and startup guy, I did see the potential that maybe it would get really big, you know, as a long shot bet. Um, me and a bunch of rationalists on lesswrong.com, which is a rationalist forum, we were talking like, look, if this did become the world currency, uh, and Satoshi himself was saying it could be worth $100,000 plus per coin if it did work. It probably won't work, but if it did, the upside is high and the cost is so low. And as a rationalist, you know, you multiply the upside potential by the probability, which is like, let's give it like 1% and the odds were still good. So I put in, you know, not a huge check, $10,000 uh, as an investment. And sure enough, kind of the very best case scenario worked out. And but what made you change your mind? When did you start thinking differently? How was that thought process? Like, can you walk us through it? Yeah, so over the years, since 2012, when I invested in Coinbase, and I thought that Bitcoin had a lot of potential, I just basically started getting more educated. So for example, at the time, um, I knew that Bitcoin was uh, deflationary, right? And it didn't have central bank, didn't have monetary policy. But I just didn't know the macroeconomics that well. I was like, okay, so what? So it can be deflationary, you know, maybe we should go back to the gold standard. But the more I learned about that, I was like, well, um, no, like that, that's probably a bad idea. That could you know, get us right back into the Great Depression. And, um, you know, having that extra money in the system when you need it um, and having your currency be separate from the way that you invest, right? And, and holding assets, like they do serve two different roles. So the more I learned about macroeconomics, I was like, okay, well, this is a bad idea macroeconomically. And not only that, at the same time, I also see like it's not even good for transacting because even the anonymity of it is kind of overblown. So I, I just started getting more and more kind of cracks in the armor. So did you have a Eureka moment or just gradually? Or when did you decide to like take the stance that you're currently now offering to your Twitter followers? I just kept seeing more and more cracks in the armor. So 
one of the biggest cracks I saw was the whole Web3 thing and, and losing respect for Andreessen Horowitz in the US. Um, Chris Dixon in particular, and you know, I have to pick on him because it's, he's actually, he's kind of been the loudest one, right? So he's actually done so a service So for our publishing. followers, for our followers who might not know who this is or Andreessen Horowitz, who are not like in the startup space, like who are these people? Who is Chris yeah, Dixon? Yeah, Andreessen Horowitz is one of the top, uh, most successful and respected venture capital firm. They have the most uh, money that they invest. They were founded, co-founded by Mark Andreessen, who was uh, one of the founders of the web browser, right? So here's a guy who really understands the internet, really understands how to build a venture firm. And he has a lot of famous quotes that you might've heard. Like he says, software is eating the world and it's time to build, right? So really smart, well-known guy. And I personally respected his firm a lot too. But when I started reading what they were writing about crypto, I was like, well, wait a minute. Like they're just really not making logical sense. Like the whole concept of Web3 and the things that Chris Dixon, who's their partner in charge of crypto, the stuff that he was writing, I think it's great that he was explaining it, but it was also kind of proof that he didn't know what he was talking about. And let's let's talk about Web3 because a lot of people and our listeners included have probably heard about the currencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum and so forth. But investors has, have really poured billions of dollars into the Web3, the new internet and new companies building products based of based on crypto. But not many people might have heard of these companies. So maybe you can give some examples of these like new product companies, what they were doing, where are they now, etc. I've there's a famous example, Helium, for instance. Could you walk us through some of those? Yeah, absolutely. So and just to recap where we so we started with Bitcoin, which is the idea of this decentralized currency. And since then we moved on to all these ideas where it's like, hey, it's not just Bitcoin, it's blockchain technology. Right. And Andreessen Horowitz was one of the the loudest voices saying, look, blockchain technology can also uh, make games. It can help you make games better and, and games, you know, have more engagement in your games and less marketing in your games. And all of these claims started coming out of what blockchain technology could do. And you mentioned Helium. That's a project that's still going. That's funded by hundreds of millions of dollars from uh, Andreessen Horowitz. And the idea of Helium is like, look, we're going to make essentially an internet service provider where we're going to give you a, a Wi-Fi signal except it's actually this other thing called LongFi. It's like Wi-Fi for Internet of Things devices. So it was this visionary idea of like, let's give internet connectivity to every device everywhere, except it won't be powered by your normal internet company. It'll be peer-to-peer -peer, where everybody in their house will just have like this internet, uh, uh, you know, hotspot. Um, and it'll be powered by the blockchain because you'll get paid in tokens. So it was like this elaborate scheme that's still growing. And like is typical in this whole blockchain Web3 space, it the suspicion was it's kind of a big Ponzi scheme because the idea of what they think they're doing doesn't really make sense. Yeah, so Helium, it was all about like, okay, the internet now, traditional internet providers, you know, we're not going to go for that. But crypto is going to, like blockchain is going to enable a completely different internet. So again, like this notion of blockchain disrupting the status quo and brings a new type of product to the masses. But so you said Helium, powered by millions of dollars. Where is it now? Like, what happened to it? It was uh, an insane story uh, that played out over the last couple of years. So Helium started, um, you know, they, they got their first fundraising from uh, traditional venture capital investors. And then because of the blockchain technology, between 2017 and 2021, they started building hype where ordinary citizens around the world just started uh, purchasing these hotspots, paying like $500 USD um, to buy these hotspots because these hotspots were supposed to help them get tokens. And so this is kind of how the Ponzi worked. So suddenly you have 
about 250,000 individuals, individual purchases are, are around the world, uh, buying these hotspots, hoping to make money. Um, and then suddenly, um, they, they thought they were making money. They were making maybe like $100 a month. And like, oh, wow, this is great. This hotspot is making me money. But suddenly the money starts drying up. So earlier this year, it started drying up like $100 a month, $50 a month, $20 a month. Now maybe they're making like $3 a month. So they're not even getting close now to recouping the $500 investment. And so now everybody said, well, wait a minute, what was going on? What was going on with the scheme? How did this happen? And the answer is because all the money that they ever made was just subsidized by the investors and they don't actually have demand for the thing they're building. It's kind of all just a front for doing the Ponzi scheme. Yeah, people still want the traditional internet that kind of works, uh, kind of works well. So um, this brings us to a term that I've seen you use a lot. And it was the first time I actually read about the term was through your Twitter, which is like hollow abstraction. All these fanc fancy claims being made by investors talking about the future. It's hard to really decipher what they actually mean. But you, through this hollow abstraction framework, you kind of offer a new way of thinking about crypto. Can you explain this hollow abstraction and what you mean by it? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> this is why the concept of a hollow abstraction is necessary, because it's kind of common knowledge that crypto has a lot of Ponzi's in it and a lot of scammers in it, right? That's kind of common knowledge. But everybody thinks, look, there's upside too, right? The top 1% makes sense because look at these visions. There's all these visions like, you know, it's reinventing the internet. Uh, it's bring, you know, bringing the internet to the people, decentralizing the world, uh, cutting out the middleman. It's going to enable micropayments. So there's all these visionary words you could throw around of supposedly what crypto can do that's good. That's not a Ponzi scheme. Um, but the reason I made up the term hollow abstraction is because I wanted to point out that it's not enough to just have this abstract pitch that sounds good abstractly. You always have to make sure that there's also a specific version of the pitch that makes sense in a specific context, right? So one example I use is micropayments. Like if I tell you, wouldn't it be great if anybody can pay the smallest amount of money in less than a second to anybody, anytime as an abstraction? Yes, that sounds very visionary and great. But then when I say, okay, well, is there like on, on Spotify, do you want to buy songs? Well, I guess I don't need to pay separately for each song. I just pay the monthly fee. So it becomes hard to find out what specifically the, the, the hollow abstraction, is there actually an example that maps to the abstraction? And often the answer is no. Um, do you have a favorite example among the hollow abstractions that have, or the hollow abstractions that you've seen? Yeah, so, um, you know, Chris Dixon, because he does this public service of explaining how crypto people are thinking, he deals us a lot of hollow abstractions. So we can mine Chris Dixon's <laughs> content. Um, so, so one of them is uh, one of the ones that really got me uh, realizing, you know, how little sense this made is when he, he made a post called uh, your take rate is my opportunity. So it's like this, this vision, the idea that like in quote unquote web two in all the traditional internet services that we use, that we enjoy, you know, Amazon, Spotify, uh, you know, the games we play, like all, all the things we're used to, you know, Twitter, um, all of these services supposedly are exploiting uh, the, their customers and, and over earning, taking too high of a profit margin, too high of what he calls a take rate, um, because there's like too much monopoly effect, right? Like Google search has like a monopoly now. And so they're taking too much of the earnings and there's a, it's like an inefficient market now. And the only way to fix it is with blockchain technology, because these quote unquote web three applications are supposedly somehow going to have a lower take rate uh, and and the users are going to get, they're going to capture more of the value and the company is going to get less of the profit. So, so like an example, if yeah, I yeah. post a picture on Instagram, like 
Facebook takes takes it all because I don't can't monetize that picture right. directly. And then in exactly. Web three, it's like I am going to get something from creating content on the internet. Exactly, that's a good example because he A sixteen Z has actually published these insane slideshows that are just nonsensical slide decks. But these are the are the official materials of Andreessen Horowitz A sixteen Z. There are these slide decks that will say, "Hey, look, uh, when you post on Instagram." Instagram has a hundred percent take rate or Twitter has a hundred percent take rate. Meaning like if I produce a nice image, right? If I take a photo and I post it on Twitter and I get some likes for it and people enjoy it, well, Twitter captured all the value of the photo. Like I should have gotten like 50 cents for that photo for posting that. Why? Because Twitter got to show ads next to it and they got to run their business off it and they got to you know pay their shareholders off it. And like I, as the user didn't get anything. So they really make a big deal out of this hundred percent take rate concept. And they say, look, there's there's systems on that run on blockchain technology where you can post a photo and every time we show an ad on that photo we'll send the ad to you like thank you blockchain you know we can revenue share um and so that the reason why it's it's all nonsense is because every time they make a specific example like this it's like okay well you know you can it's like revenue sharing is a thing like why are we even talk, talking about blockchain technology right like youtube shares some revenue right they share about half revenue and if i just put up my own website and put a video up on a server I can keep 100% of the revenue. Like there's there's different revenue models on the internet. I mean, the reason why Twitter is not paying me is because it's a small amount of money and I'm benefiting from using the Twitter service and using Twitter's user base, right? So they are paying me. I'm I'm getting, and not only that, but I'm, I'm making connections. Like I, I don't need Twitter to pay me the 50 cents. So I don't really know what they're off about. And honestly, I think it's an incoherent case that they're making. Let's talk about an, another like example. Uh, in Norway, there is a... Um famous gaming company called um, Sky Mavis that pr- that makes a game called Axie Infinity because they have a Norwegian Norwegian co-founder and I was just searching online and looking at what investors wrote when they invested in this game and they say it's a long it's a long post I'll just read the end Axie hasn't just provided itself to be a fun game to play it's an incredible community and play-to-earn model that have ensured that it's taken on the characteristics of a social network, jobs platform, and payments company too. And people who have never come across blockchain technology before now find themselves battling with and collecting cute creatures, cre- uh, creatures offering them new economic opportunities. It looks like a blockchain game revolution. It's on underway. What happened to Axie was that they got hacked by Lazarus, the North Korea hacker group, for $600 million. And it turns out that these users weren't really playing the game necessarily for fun, and they didn't have new economic opportunities. Like, what, if you think about Axie as a hollow abstraction, what's, what do you think was wrong with that? Yeah, I mean, so the, the funny thing is they, you know, you mentioned the hack, it was like a $600 million hack, right? It's like one of the, the biggest, most valuable hacks ever in, you know, in history. And I would argue that's not even that important, <laughs> like because the hack, it's just icing on the cake that they got hacked. The original problem was that it, it didn't need blockchain technology and the use case didn't make sense except as a Ponzi scheme, right? So even if it didn't get hacked, it would have collapsed anyway because it was a Ponzi scheme. So I, I guess to back up a little bit, the pitch for Axie is like, look, we have this video game where when you play it, you earn tokens and you can actually work. It's it's insane that... I, you know, thinking back on it, it's insane, but the pitch was they actually used the term, they called it a play to earn game. So the idea is you play the game and you make money. So then the question is, okay, great. Where does the money come from? Who pays it? 
And the answer was other players. And it's like, oh, okay. So what are the other players paying for? And the answer was the other players are playing to earn. So it was just a recursive answer. Like everybody's playing to earn. Um, and of course, if you zoom out and make a diagram of what's happening, you just get a Ponzi scheme, right? And it can't go on because you, you actually need more new users coming in, right? So you need layers and layers of the pyramid. And eventually you run out of layers and, and everybody who's still there is a sucker. And so I, I was saying this in 2021. A lot of people were saying it. You could look on YouTube and you could see, hey, here's an explainer of why Axie Infinity is a Ponzi, like perfectly well explained. And at the same time as all these explainers were coming out that it's a Ponzi, you have Andreessen Horowitz, um, you know, Packy McCormick wrote a really nice elaborate post documenting why he thinks it's, you know, something other than a Ponzi, like completely ignorant of it being a Ponzi. And his commenters are saying, um, Packy, you know, this is a Ponzi, right? Like people were calling out the investors as they were making the investment. And so it really is like a, a stunning situation where something that's so obviously a Ponzi, both by pure logic and by empirically observing that it did in fact collapse like a Ponzi. Like as this was happening, the investors were still pitching us that blockchain technology enables these new economic models. And this is something totally different. And this is going to be worth a trillion dollars and it's a new economy. So it's just, it's just stunningly, um, you know, like incompetent of all the investors who are propping this up. Why do you think it's so like two such strong different stance on this? And on one end, it's still people thinking, you know, this is a gaming revolution. It's enabled by blockchain. We'll continue to invest in it. And then on the other hand is people is like, it's obviously a Ponzi. Like how, how does the view became so divided? Um, I mean, I think... So I understand how somebody can get excited and quote unquote, go down the rabbit hole of Web3. Um, I even did an exercise where I said, look, I'm going to really try to get into the heads of, uh, of Web3 and Bitcoin and blockchain supporters. And I'm going to see if I can, you know, talk the way they talk and make the kind of arguments they make. And I think that I succeeded. I even have a thread on Twitter that's full of me, people answering as an exercise, you know, as if I'm pitching the Web3 vision. So I get that the vision is appealing of like, look, what if you could just run, have these robust systems, right? Like smart contracts on the blockchain. That's another buzzword. What if this all just runs and it uses technology and code can be law and we just, we can rely less on government and things will just work better. You know, people will have more direct control. So I can put on this visionary hat and like all of these concepts sound good. So it's like this, it's a very easy concept to, uh, to fall for um, when you don't realize that like, look, the concepts sound great. It's just that the technology, blockchain technology specifically, is not going to get us there. It's it's much too weak for the job. Um, I've so I followed you on Twitter. I've seen some of the examples that um, that you have uh, like gone into debunked or you know taken this hollow abstraction framework to it. So do you have any other like favorite examples where it just doesn't make sense at all to apply blockchain mm -hmm. technology to it? Yeah, so here's the thing about blockchain technology. So my background is computer science um, and software engineering. So, and not only that, but I actually studied uh, schemes, cryptographic schemes for for cash in grad school. So when Bitcoin came out, it was actually fresh off taking some graduate level electives where I'm like, oh, wow, this is like a new uh, scheme for cryptocurrency that has some properties that make it work better. So I appreciate what blockchain is, but I also appreciate what it isn't. And it really isn't a lot. Um, really blockchain is a technology that lets you in a decentralized fashion, it lets you prevent double spending. That's really all it does. Everybody thinks it can do so much more. Everybody's like, well, look, it can be a new database that helps uh, different applications interoperate. No, that's really not what it's for. If you just want applications to interoperate, you really can just host your own regular database. So all of these things that people think blockchain can do, 
besides decentralized double spend prevention, it really doesn't do anything. And and the funny thing is it's it's gotten so far with the hype that it's like nobody will ever believe me now. And I'm like, guys, the hype was misguided. It should not have been hyped. It's really weak. It doesn't do anything. Forget about it. Nobody wants to forget about it now because it's just been too hyped. People refuse to just admit that the hype was wrong and they should forget about it. You see what I'm saying? Like it's, it did not deserve the hype that I got. So we've talked about like Web3 um, companies that use blockchain te technology to power like new products. But another recurring theme the last few years has, of course, been like decentralized finance, that the blockchain te technology will power new financial products that's not dependent on mm -hmm. banks at all. And we have a lot of listeners who work in in uh, in banks. And one of the also like rising stars over the last few years uh, was a player called Celsius, who even had a slogan called unbank yourself. Your bank is not your friend, etc. Um, and they just recently filed for bankruptcy. What was the promise here and how did that turn out? So I think the way that they duped most of their uh, most of their depositors was they pretended like they were a bank that paid you really high interest, and the average person depositing money in Celsius, you know, there were if the letters came out, um, the you know the heartbreaking letters of the people who lost all this money, they're like, look, I'm retired, and I you know I put uh, some money that I need to pay for medical bills so they, into this. They right? like, like purchased crypto with their dollars uh, and then put the crypto into Celsius. And then they were promised astronomic interest rates. That's what the concept, right? right? Exactly. It's just like, look, save with us. It's low risk and it's high interest, right? So of course the pitch is great when it's high interest, but if it's like, well, where does the high interest come from? And supposedly it was like, you know, they had, they were going to use blockchain technology or decentralized finance or DeFi right? Supposedly somebody else is going to pay higher interest on their deposits and it was all going to make sense and be safe. Um, but of course it was just, you know, a poorly run scheme, right? And eventually the money ran out and they, and they couldn't even withdraw their principal, which is not what you expect when you're depositing into a bank. So some people have said that the only thing crypto or blockchain has really enabled is like securities at fraud, like large scale, large scale fraud. What do you think about that? I mean, I do think that that is, um, you know, if, if you look at what's, what's accomplished besides, uh, you know, zero sum value transfers, I do think it's enabled a lot of fraud because, I mean, if, again, going back to what blockchain is, what does the technology do? Um, you know, yes, it lets you transfer, um, you know, without a government, without a central bank, it lets you make these transfers. And in the case of Monero, which is more, it's like Bitcoin, but it's more anonymous, right? So suddenly it lets you transfer where you can't even trace the transfer. Um, you do actually have something that's useful there for money laundering and for black market transactions, right? So I know friends of friends who have gone on these dark net markets, right? Placed an order using Monero for uh, marijuana, let's say, right? And then it comes, it's come through the US Postal Service, right? Because the Postal Service, did, they didn't know what they were shipping, right? So they they had this great black market where they were able to use Monero currency to, to buy marijuana as if it was eBay, right? And normally you can't do that on eBay in the US. Um, and, and not only that, but it, it enables money laundering, right? So if, if you're in the mafia, right, and, and you just got paid to kill somebody, right? Um, well, you got your money, you know, how do you deposit it in a, in a bank normally? Uh, well, you can't because the bank is suspicious how you got so much money. But if you're able to go buy an NFT with Monero, right, and they're going to look the other way, well, suddenly you're, you're, you're nicely laundering that, you know, however much money you made illegally. Um, and so, yeah, like there are actually a bunch of applications if you're a criminal. If you're not a criminal, what exactly are you trying to do with the system? Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. And also, I saw you posted not too long ago 
long ago, uh, an example of OpenSea, the uh, mainstream NFT platform. Uh, you used that as an example. Uh, could you just walk mm-hmm. us through the example that you posted? Yeah, so you know, OpenSea is the largest place to trade NFTs. Um, and OpenSea is just another one of these companies that was flying so high. I think they last got like a $14 billion uh, valuation for this company that's a few years old. Uh, it was a startup. Um, and you know, they, if you look at the transaction volume on OpenSea, it's a perfect reflection of the crypto bubble, right? Because last year it was peaking, um, you know, in, in a given month, hundreds of millions of dollars of NFTs were supposedly transacting on OpenSea, hundreds of millions. Um, if, if you look at it uh, this month, it's like a few million, right? I, f- I forgot the exact numbers, but what was striking to me is it was like a 99% decline. Mm. Now, real businesses don't have a 99% decline for month to month, unless you're selling, uh, you know, Christmas uh, stuff, and then it's December 26. Okay, then maybe you get a 99% drop. But besides that, if you don't have a seasonal business, you don't get a 99% drop. Um, and so, so how do we, you know, analyze what just happened? It's pretty clearly that their business was, um, you know, money laundering. People are using NFTs for money laundering uh, and watch trading, where people were, you know, selling the NFTs to each other to pretend that they were valuable, even though there's no real buyer. And then finally, a speculation bubble. Right, where everybody was trying to flip something to the next guy to the greater fool and the ones left hanging, you know, lost a bunch of money. Like the average person lost a bunch of money. So all of this, all of these shenanigans were happening and nobody was getting just real value out of it, right? Nobody was treating it like a real customer of a real business. Um, and so what's going on now, you look back and you're like, well, why did, once again, Andreessen Horowitz, why did they invest in OpenSea, right? What was everybody's thesis of why OpenSea made sense? Um, and there's a lot of writing that you can read from these venture capitalists saying, NFTs are useful. Like NFTs are not just board apes. They're not just monkey pictures that you can right click and save. They're actually useful. Like they could be, for example, like a concert ticket, like a better concert ticket. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, I also yeah. saw this example of uh, someone from the NFT space talking, uh, talking about this example of to- uh, a concert ticket as an NFT. And then that you can again then turn it into some financial product where you could take out a loan on that um concert ticket and i saw you had some criticism towards that as well and like that again is a hollow or um within the hollow abstraction framework kind of what was it uh, what do you think about using like that idea for the future yeah th- it's such a perfect hollow abstraction because if i pitch it um as a visionary i can say look nfts they're just a piece of data and they can represent anything so if you're going to a concert instead of just having an old-fashioned paper ticket what if you had an NFT, a, t- a special token that sure can get you to the concert, but also you can plug it in to DeFi, to the, the whole infrastructure of decentralized finance, and suddenly you could very easily trade it with anybody if anybody else wants to go to the concert, or you can potentially take out a loan against it because it has some sort of value. And so, so now, you know, that's convenient too if you need a quick loan. Um, now you might think, well, what, a loan against a concert ticket? That sounds a little ridiculous. But actually, I'm quoting the CEO of OpenSea, what he said in an interview. Like, that is what he offered as a use case of an NFT. And so then when you hear something like that, you you step back and think like, well, wait a minute. Are there really use cases here? Or are we really just trying to like, you know, just make stuff up on the fly because we're trying to, you know, rationalize why this stuff exists? Have you seen any other examples of money laundering or uh, money laundering using blockchain technology in um, while you've been looking into the space? I mean. <clears throat> you know, there was the the famous uh, RazzleCon thing, right? <laughs> Which is, so a, a lot of the money, the illegal money, they get it from 
uh, blockchain exchanges themselves, right? So like, where do these criminals even make their money? Well, a lot of times they make it by hacking blockchain companies. So um, if you remember uh, Heather Morgan um, and uh, Ilya Lichtenstein, these two people somehow obtained um, like billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin uh, from some hacked exchange, uh, you know, look up the exact details, but they then had all this money and then they were actually actively trying to launder it. So they were saying like, oh, can we go buy Walmart gift cards? Can we send some of it to other exchanges? Um, and it was really funny because, you know, it took the government a few years to track them down, but eventually there was enough evidence on the blockchain where in this case, it didn't even help the money launderer. So it kind of failed at what it's supposed to be good at because, you know, it was Bitcoin, it wasn't Monero. So it's, um, but yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting story. And I think they're making like Netflix documentaries about it now. Um, and talking about financial products. So this podcast has a lot of um, people in banks uh, as listen, uh, you know, uh, listening into the show. And I've talked to a few people who work in banks and they've also been sold this vision that crypto is inevitably part of the future. Everybody's going to use it. And they have started to think like, oh, our compliance programs needs to be built with this in mind and investing in resources and technology to kind of support that. But for those who, you know, head of compliance, head of anti-money laundering in a bank, thinking that, like, what advice would you offer them? So I understand the need to want to, you know, skate to where the puck is going, right? To want to anticipate future trends. But I think you're looking at a trend that's already peaked with Bitcoin. Um, I don't think it's going to die completely. So I think I think that Bitcoin's going to be around for a very long time and some other cryptos are going to be, but I don't think you're going to see, um, you know, another bubble or another peak because um, I think the speculation aspect of it is mostly played out. So I don't think there's going to be that many new suckers coming in because we already had Super Bowl ads in the US, right? And yeah. we already, everybody kind of already knows about it. I don't think there's a new tier of mainstream suckers who are going to come in. In 2023, I don't think you're going to see more Super Bowl ads with Matt Damon. I think those are already played out. Um, and so that you're not going to find speculators or are you going to find real users? But the problem is there's very, very few real users today and there's not a good growth trend of real users. So people have made the analogy like, oh, it's growing just like the internet was growing. And it's really, really not. It's absolutely nothing like the internet. It's actually slowly shrinking. Um, and uh, do you have any other sort of favorite examples where people pitched a visionary future underpinned by bold statements, but then taking it down to a more specific level, it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, one thing people pitch is the idea of um, interoperable data. So like, you know, with blockchain technology, everything can work together nicely. And it's just so incoherent. Whenever you hear the details of a scheme, it's just by somebody who doesn't understand how to actually do software architecture for something that's interoperable. Like they make a pitch like, you know, what if, uh, uh, you know, every, what if every, uh, you know, they say for Twitter, there's a thing called Farcaster, for example, which is like, what if every tweet could just be something that uh, everybody else's app could download? Like, what if Twitter's API was open? And it's like, well, you know, you can make things with open APIs on the web. Like we have RSS, like podcasts, you know, use open standards. It's the reason Twitter doesn't let you download everybody's tweets is because they have a business model where the trade-off you make is, yes, you, you know, you can't dump all the tweets out of Twitter, but at the same time, they run a good platform. And that is, you know, a contract they make with a consumer that you can accept or reject. And it has nothing to do with your data layer technology, right? So switching to blockchain as your data layer technology does not change anything about what happens with the downloadability or interoperability of your data. Um, 
Any other examples that you want to highlight that could be interesting for our listeners who have uh, never necessarily not thought of it in this way before? Yeah. So, you know, when you ask somebody who's pro Web3 or pro blockchain, when you're like, look, so what to you is a use case? Right? Like, what do you, um, what appeals about it to you? Um, and they, they really spray a bunch of different answers, right? So, so another thing they'll spray is that they'll be like, well, I don't want to be censored. Right. So I, I want to say everything I want. And I, and I don't, you know, like Donald Trump was censored on Twitter. They blocked him. Although now maybe Elon Musk will let him back in. We'll see. Um, so like, I don't want to be censored. And it's like, look, censorship is, is a complicated subject. Right. I mean, do you want to cen- uh, censor uh, child abuse material or do you want to use a platform where a spammer can fill it up with child abuse material? No, that's a terrible idea. Right. So so we're already talking about a continuum. Right. So we're talking about some kind of moderation layer. And yeah, like on the on the fringes, you're always going to have little mistakes, little imperfections on how the moderation layer is operating. But the solution does not involve, you know, a decentralized new type of database that is good at preventing double spending. There's no connection. You see what I'm saying? Like people bring in this idea of blockchain, like let's use blockchain. Like that's their hammer. I'm just telling you as a computer science, um, you know, not not a, a professor or anything, but somebody who studied a lot. I'm just telling you the technology is not a fit for any of this stuff. Yeah, another like prominent example where blockchain like the promise of blockchain will make something better is wikipedia so there is a a startup pitching that we're going to make a better wikipedia that runs on on blockchain um Mm -hmm. could you walk us through that example yeah so it's called uh, golden.com and they've actually been operating since um i think they started in 2017 and they launched in 2019 um and they pivoted to crypto so their original idea was like we're going to somehow be a better wikipedia that's private and then as of uh, this year, they're like, we're a better Wikipedia that's private. And also we have blockchain tokens and we just raised $40 million from guess who? Andreessen Horowitz. <laughs> so it's like another, it's like their next Axie Infinity, basically, right? It's like another head scratcher of an investment from Andreessen Horowitz um, that, uh, so it claims to be a better, better encyclopedia. Originally in 2019, even before they were doing crypto, I was confused about how it was supposed to be a better encyclopedia because I was like, well, let me see your pages. And I looked at the pages and most of the pages that they had in their encyclopedia on golden.com were just worse versions of what you find on Wikipedia. A few pages were better and more thorough. And then I'm like, okay, great. How did you make this page better and more thorough? And I looked at the edit history and it's like, okay, well, people that they paid who work on their team just like wrote the content. And it's like, well, that's great that you're subsidizing a few people to write a little bit of content, but I just, I just don't understand the idea, right? Like, can't, can't I already do that today? Can't I already pay somebody to write an encyclopedia article today? Like, what is the innovation here? Um, and so sure enough, they, you know, they keep pivoting, they keep p- pitching different stuff. And normally a company like this would just kind of quietly, you know, have like a soft landing, you know, maybe Google would buy them because, you know, they have smart engineers, right? And you wouldn't hear about them again. But because of crypto, because you have Andreessen Horowitz that has a $4.5 billion crypto fund that they have to invest, then suddenly the money goes there. And now we're going to be hearing about Golden for the next who knows how many years, right? Because they're spending all this money. Um, and if you ask them, like, how is the scheme even supposed to work? It's like, well, they, of course, they have tokens. And a bunch of people are now maybe going to make contributions to the encyclopedia in order to get the tokens because they think the tokens are going to be worth a lot. Um, but you just have to ask the question of like, okay, well, if, if the tokens are worth a lot and they're being subsidized by investors, how does this compete with an alternate encyclopedia that just uses money, right? <laughs> just says, hey, we'll pay you to write. Like, what, how does blockchain help? And it's very, very unclear how blockchain technology helps. So... Now there's a big call for stricter regulations, both in the EU and the US. And of course, 
people who are who are pro crypto they say that regulating it will be like regulating the internet in the infancy it will hinder innovation and so forth um what are what is your stance on regulation will it help somehow to you know find the use cases to make blockchain more mainstream or will it like what will regulation help with this help in this uh, so at a high level i'm sympathetic you know to regulating it's it is risky to regulate new technology early it is worth pointing out you know when you say early it's worth pointing out it's not that early right so bitcoin was uh, the white paper came out in 2008 right so that's 14 years right the iphone is about as old as bitcoin we're now at iphone 14 so you know iphone has you know, like a billion users and you know a million applications bitcoin has few applications right so if, if you look at how early it is I, I would say it's not that early but you could argue, you know, some people make the argument of like, well, you know what, forget about uh, the internet. Um, the internet started in like 1960. So actually, if something, you know, the internet is like 60 years old. So if something is uh, is, is 14 years old, that is early. So I'm not going to get into that argument of what's early and what's not. Um, the ans My answer to regulation is like, you shouldn't get bogged down in the abstractions of it. You should unpack and see what's actually going on. Um, you know, describe more specifically what's going on and regulate that. For example. Um, if somebody's trading a token, if the token is functioning like a security, I do think you should regulate it like a security just because it has a different type of database storing it. I don't think you should let people, you know, go sell it to other people without the same disclosures that you expect from a security. What do you think will happen with some of the people behind the, let's call it securities fraud for, for this forum, such as Celsius or the Two Arrows Capital or some of the big NFTs rug pull that's been over the last few years. What do you think will happen to these people or the Terra Luna uh, collapse? I mean, I think most people will get away with it, right? Because they they successfully, it was kind of pre-regulation. So they'll probably get like a nice deal with regulators if the regulators decide to come after them. If you look at the biggest schemes, right? Like the, the giant Luna collapse, right? Where so many people lost 99% of their principal. Um, you know, Do Kwan, the the founder of Luna, like that guy is on the run. I mean, he is he's probably guilty of a lot of things along the way, right? So you've got a few special cases of people who have done so many things wrong in the course of running their schemes that they probably are going to get prosecuted, right? And maybe they'll serve jail time. And that's you know, I I can't tell you exactly how that's going to happen, but those are just a relatively small number of cases. The larger amount of cases of all these random people who got into these Discord chat rooms, right? And helped pump these new type of NFTs and try to flip it onto somebody else and make money uh, and tell that other person that it's, that it's like a new revolution, right? Technically, they were selling securities, but, you know, they're not going to get prosecuted. But I hope that in the future that, you know, there's more clear regulation of like, listen, that's not something you can do. Like, stop getting, <laughs> stop suckering people into these schemes. What do you think will happen with uh, uh, the investor Dixon and uh, the... Um more established firm who has also put money into this space. So funny enough, Andreessen Horowitz, it's, it's a very interesting story, first of all, financially, because they had a crypto fund from, I think, 2018, where they made a large investment in Coinbase, just like I did. I invest in Coinbase too. Um, and, uh, and, and their investment had like a 10x return, where thanks to the, the smart decision of Chris Dixon, which was smart in retrospect, his 300 million into Coinbase, has turned into something like uh, 3 billion, something like that. So he did get something like a 10x return. Um, now, funny enough, Coinbase later went down after they went public, right? So they went down 80%. So he was able to sell about half at the top. But anyway, financially, his fund is going to lock in like a 3 to 7x return, which is respectable. But then this is the problem is he doubled down, right? So like in 2019, 2020, 2021, it's, 
um, there was an article that came out yesterday in the Wall Street Journal saying A16Z and Chris Dixon invested in crypto at the worst possible time. So they had this huge early success with Coinbase. And so they ran in with billions more into Coinbase and into all these other companies. And those billions are going to pretty much go to zero. So he's basically going to erase all of his gains and, and, then, and then some, right? He's, he's going to come out um, like with most of his principal, uh, principal capital just obliterated. You know, his LPs in his fund are, are really not going to do well. Um, that said, you know, he still ultimately probably benefited more than he harmed because he is number one on the Midas list, right? He has a reputation as a bold investor, right? So, you know, if you succeed and then fail, it's probably better than not doing anything in the first place. And a, a couple other things to know about that, um, A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz, their crypto fund is actually separated from their other funds. So they can have a disaster in the crypto fund and they can make a modest return in their other funds and they still get to keep that 20% carry on the returns in the other funds. So financially, they're going to do fine. And then legally, I don't think they're going to be prosecuted in any way because look, all they're doing is investing, right? So even if there is like securities fraud and schemes, well, they've got a nice, you know, they're like a proxy, right? They're, they're one level removed. So I think, and not only that, they're going to collect management fees. So at the end of the day, even if the fund goes to zero, they're going to collect a 2% management fee per year on like $4.5 billion. So they're going to make like $90 million purely on management fees. So kudos to Andreessen and Horowitz. Like they're, they're running a very nice, smart operation. And for, I see we need to wrap up. So for our listeners, some who might have heard this perspective for the first time, what are some other resources or tools you could give them if they want to sort of explore this further or people who are um, want to change their mind like you did, who thought crypto was the future, but now uh, want to see like the other side of it? Yeah, there there's a few really good crypto skeptical resources. Um, so uh, I recommend a, a new book that came out uh, by the computer scientist Stephen Deal. It's called um, uh, Popping the Bitcoin Bubble. I would check that out on the internet. I think you can read it for free. There's a book from a few years ago uh, by author David Gerard. Um, it's called uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. And that book, even though it's now five years old, it really nails the story of Bitcoin. And it's still super relevant today because all the schemes that it talks about from 2009 to 2017 the schemes we're seeing today, it's just the same stuff. People aren't even that creative with the schemes. The schemes just repeat and repeat. So I highly recommend uh, those, those two books, uh, Popping the uh, Bitcoin Bubble and Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. Thanks a lot, Liron. It was really great to have you on the show. I hope our listeners got a new perspective and maybe want to research this direction a little bit more. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Your money make a world go round.